Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, when I was in seminary, a famous English classical actor came to town to present a one-man theatrical production of St. Mark's Gospel. The actor's name was Alec McCown, performing on a bare stage with nothing but a table and three chairs, a pitcher of water, and a glass. He recited from memory the Gospel of Mark in the King James Version. Now that may sound pretty dry to you, but I got to tell you, I was mesmerized by his performance. It was riveting. It's still vivid in my memory 35 years later. So when I thought about doing a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, I naturally thought of Alec McCown and of that particular performance I saw that night. So I googled his name to find out whatever became of him. And I was pleased to discover that there uh, is a DVD of his performance from a revival of St. Mark's Gospel that was done in 1990. So just for fun, I would like to play just a little bit of this for you. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which will prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. 
Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets, and straightway he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And they went into Capernaum. And straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What are we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. So uh, maybe you can see a little bit why I found it so riveting. McCown's friends were surprised that uh, he would spend 16 months on a project to memorize the 687 verses of the King James Version. He said some thought it was for the Guinness Book of World Records. But then he says, but after I had read the first three chapters, I knew it was the best script I ever had. Well, McCown performed St. Mark's Gospel on Broadway and at the White House, and in other venues to rave reviews. The Christian Science Monitor stated, clarity, conviction, narrative thrust, and a vivid immediacy are the keynotes of McCown's performance. And the New York Times lauded it as a performance as revelation, and a one-man play in which the actor becomes a conduit of genius. McCown's performance was genius, to be sure, But the power and the clarity and the narrative thrust came from the script itself, the best script he ever had. Of course, it was a script inspired by God himself. In the hands of a gifted actor, the script came alive. It wasn't just a book being read, just words on a page, but it was a living story. A story that vividly recounts the life of one who changed the world, Christ Jesus. I believe this gospel was meant to be read orally, out loud. The way Mark has written the sentence structure and the way the grammar is used would suggest that it was meant to be heard that way, in its totality or in large chunks. I mean, think of those early Christians gathered together in a house and having the gospel read to them. 
we tend to lose the power of the story because we read it to ourselves in silence or we read just a few verses at a time only to go do something else. The Gospel of Mark is my favorite gospel. Not because its name has a nice ring to it. <laughs> but because of its dynamism and its power and its directness, the shortest of the Gospels, the first Gospel to be written, Mark portrays Jesus as a man of action. The Gospel writer is not so much concerned about presenting all Jesus' teachings, although his teachings are certainly not absent, but he's concerned to show what Jesus did. There's an urgency to what Jesus does over and over again in this Gospel. You'll, you'll read the words immediately, immediately, straight away. At once he did this. And then he did that. And I think you could sense some of the urgency in Mark's gospel just from that little bit that we showed, McCown's account of the story. Mark gets right to the point. He has no time to discuss the details of his biography. He's not concerned to show how Jesus was born. You can go to Luke for that. As I say, he wasn't out to show a, a full, you know, a full uh, accounting of Jesus' teachings. You could go more to Luke for that or to Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wasn't, or he, Mark wasn't concerned with what Jesus looked like or whether he was married or uh, was rabbinically trained, but Mark's overriding concern is to get right to the heart of the gospel, which is all wrapped up in Jesus' identity and mission. Who is Jesus? What is he about? What does he stand for? And why is he such good news? Mark is anxious to tell the story. But before we dig into the gospel this morning, we need to ask about uh, its authorship. Actually, the gospel itself does not tell us who the author is. The gospel, according to Mark, was added later by the church. But early Christian tradition tells us that this gospel is the work of a fellow named Mark who sat under the teaching of the apostle Peter. He was not one of the original apostles, but he served as a secretary and interpreter for Peter. And if that's the case, this gospel is the closest thing that we have to an eyewitness, to somebody who actually traveled with Jesus, Peter himself. Now the Mark we're talking about may very well be John Mark, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their missionary travels. Scholars do believe that the Gospel of Mark was the first to be written, probably around 65 A.D., in Rome during the reign of the Emperor Nero. And it was addressed primarily to a Roman audience. It's interesting that uh, Peter was in Rome right about that time, so that would locate Peter and Mark together. I don't know if you heard the news the other day that a team of scholars... And scientists have claimed, claimed to have discovered the world's earliest version of the gospel, indeed of any gospel, dating back to the first century A.D. A fragment, a papyrus, a fragment of the gospel of Mark, they say, was found in an Egyptian mummy mask. It may go back to 80 A.D. Presently, the oldest surviving manuscripts that we have date from the 2nd century, from 101 A.D. to 200. 
So this would bring it back even earlier to 80 A.D. If that's the case, then this would be an amazing discovery. The discovery has yet to be corroborated by other scholars. But it could be very exciting. It's interesting that in Christian tradition, Mark is the one who first carried the gospel to Egypt. So it's interesting that a fragment of his gospel should be found in an Egyptian mummy mask. So we begin with Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that looks like a very simple statement, right? But that sentence packs a punch. This is not so much an introduction to a book, an introduction to a gospel, a book, an accounting, but it is the announcement of good news. In fact, it's the best news anyone could ever hope to receive in this life. The Greek word for good news here, or actually other versions have gospel, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, but it also could be good news. Is the, the, the Greek word is the word evangelion, from which we get the word uh, evangelical or evangelism. That word is a specialized good news word, a word that was used in the ancient world to announce really great news, important news, like the victory in battle or the birth of a king or the ascension of an emperor. So when Mark uses this word gospel or good news, an ancient audience would have immediately taken notice and say, oh, what is this? What has just happened? And they would have great expectation. They knew about something was really important about to be announced and that it would affect them all. I guess the closest thing to us, as I was thinking, uh, would be like, you know, the kind of a movie cliche of the newspaper vendors, you know, shouting out, extra, extra, read all about it, hear all about it. You know, kind of like that. That's, that's, uh, kinda, that's how it would impact that, that ancient audience in the same way. Listen to this. Good news. Evangelion. This is about to rock your world. You're about to hear incredibly good news. Something has happened among us. Now for Mark, the good news is in the shape of a person, Jesus Christ. It has often been said, Christianity is Christ. The good news is not about a program or a plan or a philosophy, it's all about Jesus. And Mark doesn't mince words telling us exactly who he is. There is no secret here at the very beginning as he tells the story. Jesus' very name and his titles speak volumes. His name is Jesus, a man's name. In Hebrew, the name is Yeshua or Joshua. One of the most common names in the first century, maybe as common as John is today. The good news is centered on a man who was very much a human being, 
a man who was born, grew up, worked, and lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. The Gospel of Mark emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He was hungry. He grew weary. He got frustrated. He suffered. He died. But the name Jesus or Joshua signifies something else. The name literally means Jehovah saves. The angel said to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The good news is a story about salvation. It's about being saved from the power of sin and death. It's about conquering evil and being put right with God. It's not just about getting into heaven after you die, but it's about a new quality of life now as one lives under the reign of God. And salvation is to be found nowhere else but in the person of Yeshua, Jesus, the one who saves. Now Mark goes on to say that this Jesus is the Christ. Christos, or in Hebrew, Messiah, Messiah. Both, both uh, Christ in Greek and Messiah mean the anointed one. Christ, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. It's not Mary and Joseph Christ and Jesus Christ, but it's a title. It means the anointed one. In the ancient Middle East, it was common to anoint a king or a priest in order to dedicate them to a position of leadership. This typically involved a ceremony where oil was poured on an individual's head. An anointed one had a special purpose, and it was being dedicated to a particular task. In the Old Testament, we find Samuel anointing the young David as a sign that God had set him apart as king of Israel. But through the centuries, the idea developed that an ultimate anointed one would come. He would be from the line of David, and like his ancestor, he would free and unify his people. Under him, a golden age of blessing would begin. This person became known simply as the Anointed One or the Messiah, and the nature and the timing of his coming was a topic of much discussion. In fact, by the first century, the expectations of the people were very high. People claimed were claiming to be messiahs. They had come before Jesus and they came after him. They claimed to be the messiah. But now Mark proclaims in his very opening line, the line of his gospel, that this Jesus is none other than the messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one, the long-awaited king upon whom God's people for centuries had placed their hopes. The king has finally come to set things aright. But there's more. Jesus is not only Messiah, God's appointed representative, but he is the very Son of God. We find that Mark gives Jesus a number of titles, teacher, rabbi, Christ, son of man, son of David. But for Mark, the most important title for Jesus is Son of God, which points to his special relationship with his Father and to his divine authority. 
And Mark in his gospel will unpack the meaning of that title as Jesus is shown to have unique authority over evil powers, over sickness, over nature, and even over death itself. And there's no accident, accident that Mark should conclude with a Roman centurion looking up at the cross, watching Jesus die, and saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Climactic point in Mark's gospel. It begins with Jesus, the announcement, Jesus, the Son of God. Mark unpacks the meaning, and a Roman centurion of all people, remember Mark was written to the Romans, he recognizes Jesus' divine qualities. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. For Mark, this is nothing less than a new beginning for the world. It recalls Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. The beginning of the good news. The beginning of a new world. The beginning of God's recreation of the world that he loves so much. God come to fix a broken world, to restore his precious humanity back to himself to transform human life. So this news, this first sentence, this news, it's not a sentence though, it's, it's the beginning of a living story. Fell like a bombshell 2,000 years ago. Fell like a bombshell upon a world that was sorely lacking in good news. The long-awaited Messiah had come to break the power of sin and death and to begin God's personal reign on earth. Wow, how cool is that? So what are people to do with this news? They were to turn towards God and to receive it. They were to take the good news to heart. They were to believe it. They were to entrust themselves to it. They were to place themselves under the rule of the everlasting king. And it was urgent that they do so. It was a life and death matter. Again, the urgency of Mark's gospel. Immediately, immediately. Good news. Turn. The time has come. The time has come, he said. Said Jesus. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Believe the good news. And it's news that's just too important to ignore. Now, I fear that we have lost the goodness of the good news. We tend to take the message of Jesus for granted, or we treat the good news as something that's gone stale, like it was the headline of last week's newspaper. The excitement and passion about the good news and being people of good news, the passion of following Jesus is often missing among those who would follow him. And so we have to ask, where's the joy? Where's the heart? Where is the passion? I mean, this is life and death stuff. This is urgent, matters. Now, judging by the somber, long faces of some Christians in worship, 
I think we do pretty well in exuding a certain amount of joy. But, you know, you can observe people in, in, in worship, and you would think that someone, it had just been announced that someone had just died. It was the famous writer Robert Louis Stevenson who visited church one Sunday and who registered his surprise in his diary. Been to church this morning, and I'm not depressed. Now, admittedly, sometimes we preachers don't communicate good news very well. We have a way of taking, a way of taking the most incredible good news ever, the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ, and we preachers tend to make him boring and old hat. I remember a professor of mine in seminary complaining, you preachers can add more black crepe on good news than anyone I've ever seen. So, let's try and put ourselves in a first century frame of mind and listen to the good news shared by Mark. And so, as we study the gospel, as we will in the next few weeks, let's imagine we are meeting Jesus for the first time. Who is He? What does He stand for? What does He do? What's the good news and what does it have to do with you and me? So in the weeks ahead, we'll explore the answers to those kinds of questions. We need to lay aside our preconceived notions of Jesus because our, you know, you mentioned the word Jesus and all kinds of things go floating through our heads. We need to lay those things aside, meet him as though we were meeting him for the first time. Listen to Mark tell a story. And hopefully we will come to know Jesus in a new way and the good news will hit home like it's never hit home before. So here's your assignment. Read the Gospel of Mark, and if you can, do it all in one sitting. It's the shortest Gospel. You can do it. Read it all in one sitting if you can. Get a feel for the story in its entirety. Read it as though for the first time, and ask yourself, is there something new here about Jesus that I never knew before? And in what way is he good news for the world and for me? And I don't have to tell you that this world today is filled with bad news. We need good news more than ever. And there's no greater and more wonderful news than the good news found in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. To know him is to know joy, it is to experience life in all its abundance as God intended from the very beginning. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Amen? Amen. Amen.